This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. There's been a lot of uncertainty about the future of Twitter and its business model this week. Elon Musk took over the platform in a $44 billion deal last Thursday. Now he's the self-appointed CEO of the company, and he's fired the board of directors and the C-suite executives. As of late Thursday, Twitter employees were waiting to learn if they'll still have their jobs after reports stated that Musk plans to fire half of them. The new Twitter ownership also has advertisers nervous. Companies like General Motors, General Mills, and Audi have paused their ads on the platform. Why? Musk is a self-described free speech absolutist, and his takeover of Twitter will likely mean a different approach to content moderation, and that includes potentially welcoming back users who may have been booted off for fomenting violence or spreading misinformation. He's a avatar. He's an avatar for people's belief system. That's Emily Dreyfus. She's the co-author of a book called Meme Wars, The Online Battles Upending Democracy in America. He's on the side of the free speech extremists. <laughs> Musk, in particular, has made it clear with a wink and a nod and an overt statement that he's on the side of these folks who want anything possible to be said. Dreyfus is also the senior managing editor at the Harvard Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. She's spent a lot of time investigating the impact of social media on society. Today on Fifth Emission, she discusses what the future of social media may look like with Musk at the helm of Twitter, a platform that has shaped the social and political discourse on practically everything over the last decade. What would it mean if Musk changes Twitter's content moderation policies or if he charges an $8 monthly fee for those blue check marks? Here's my conversation with Emily Dreyfus. So much is going on with Twitter, and some of what's happening right now are some big names like producer Shonda Rhimes have left Twitter. Others like author Stephen King have indicated that they plan to leave if Musk implements some of the changes we're hearing about. So Emily, I want to start with this. Where's your head at? Have you made a decision yourself about leaving or staying on Twitter? Oh my goodness. Uh, Well, I've been thinking about leaving Twitter every single day since 2009 when I joined Twitter. So I Mm -hmm. don't think that Musk's purchase is the first thing that has made me consider leaving. The short answer is no, I'm not going to leave. And I would not leave under these circumstances. And the reason is that Twitter is an important place for me as a journalist to monitor. Mm -hmm. It's an important place to figure out what is being said, what the zeitgeist is, what's trending on there. And that is because Twitter has a very outsized influence on our culture and therefore on our politics. So being a part of or at least monitoring that discourse is an essential part of at least of my job as a journalist and as a researcher about internet culture. The other thing is that what we've seen is since since Musk took over, 
he has now had to admit that he will not be able to get rid of all of the content moderation that has been painstakingly adopted by Twitter. It's not like Twitter had it at first. Twitter has mm -hmm. adopted and formed these content moderation policies over a decade or more because of how dangerous it is to not have those policies and how much advertisers refuse to be on a platform that does not guarantee some level of safety. So the other reason I wouldn't leave is that I don't think it is going to immediately become a place of unmitigated hell. Mm. But the other thing I'll mention is that Twitter has been a toxic and an increasingly toxic place that is so not fun. Right. For a really long <laughs> time. And like, it's not worth the stress. It hasn't been for me worth the stress to be on Twitter in a real engaged way in years. And that doesn't mean we're leaving, but it's more like uh, akin to quiet quitting. There's been a right. lot of quiet quitting already. So my prediction is that that's what will continue. Right. So there's an element here of the value of sort of sticking there for a little bit to just observe and see what happens to it. But a lot of people are worried just because of Elon Musk's motivation. So to back up a bit here, mm -hmm. why did he want to buy Twitter to begin with from your perspective? You know, he's the world's richest man. He can do anything. Mm -hmm. What do you think was his motivation? Well, we're in this moment in America where power is being redefined. And, you know, it used to be journalists like you and me were the ones who had all the power to determine cultural coverage. We were the gatekeepers mm -hmm. of culture. Social mm -hmm. media completely upended that. And it also used to be that the president of the United States and politicians had a ton of power to move the needle propaganda-wise or policy-wise in terms of what happened in America. And for years, Silicon Valley has challenged that power. And I think what's going on with Musk purchasing Twitter is the recognition that, like, in order to have the most power right now in this moment, in this culture, what you need is to be controlling the discourse. There's something we like to say a lot on our team, which is that politics is downstream of culture. Politics, what happens in the real politics and policy in a country is determined by the culture of the moment. Mm -hmm. And what mm -hmm. is increasingly also true is that that culture is determined by the infrastructure on which culture is able to be represented. And so Elon Musk just purchased himself the means of cultural production. Right. That's about as powerful of a position as he can be in. And and the truth is like you mentioned he's the richest man in the world, why would he want this? Well, he said and he knows it's not a money-making scheme. But he is probably uniquely positioned to not need it to be. He doesn't need more money. He can afford to bleed money and instead reap the power of the cultural cachet. Right. Now, you mentioned it may be unlikely that Musk will unravel all of Twitter's content policies, but he's sort of an unpredictable man, right? So what existing policies that are in place in Twitter right now, are you worried might come undone with him at the helm? Yeah, he he is very unpredictable. Like that is, I couldn't agree more. Of course, he might decide he doesn't need advertising on the platform and then he would be free 
to get rid of all these content moderation policies. Like, it is a private company. He does not have to have any of those rules. They're not, like, mandated by the government in any way. It's just that Mm -hmm. he'll lose all of his advertisers. So if we're talking about capricious decision-making, if he were to decide, like, fine, I don't want any ads, then he could get rid of all of them. Now, the content moderation policies that exist right now are basically, you know, very dangerous images and videos that are either of graphic violence or, you know, child torture or child pornography. These are images that are set up to not be allowed on Twitter by complicated back-end algorithms and hashing techniques. So I doubt he'd get rid of that. That would be the most extreme moderation to get rid of. What Twitter really has is a reporting mechanism where users on Twitter are the content moderators of the site and they flag things that are wrong and they are given certain options. And over the years, those options have evolved. It used to be that you could only flag things for spam. Then it was like you could flag them for spam and harassment or spam and hate speech. And and then, you know, recently during COVID with the spread of uh, medical misinformation that was so incredibly dangerous, Twitter added the ability to flag for false information. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. so they've added all of these various things over the years. And those are the things that I think everyone thinks he might get rid of because he has said, like, I'm the free speech champion. I'm the censorship champion. That moderation, those tools really require him to have a staff of people who are monitoring the reports and taking action about it and, and caring about them Twitter is such a sprawling back-end site that it needs constant maintenance. And so there's been reporting, you know, this week that, like, even amid just the internal chaos at the company, the people whose job it is internally to make those systems work have been either unable to access their tools, just just too distracted to do their work. He could tell advertisers that he's going to keep the policies while also kneecapping the people who have to implement the policies. Mm -hmm. All of that is possible. Coming up in my conversation with author and journalist Emily Dreyfus, why has the sale of Twitter to Elon Musk pleased a group of people she calls the red-pilled right? And what does Emily think of his idea to charge money for Twitter blue checks? We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Emily Dreyfus, in your book, Meme Wars, you use the phrase the red-pilled right to refer to people who have really pushed conspiracy theories or disinformation. In theory, these are the same users that Twitter's content moderation policies have sought to keep off the platform. Tell me more about this group of people. Yes. So the red-pilled right is an umbrella term that my co-authors and I on the book Meme Wars adopted in order to describe the far-right fringe in a way where we can refer to them as one group. But in in reality, they're not one group at all. They have a lot of different disagreements. Some of them their entire identity and, you know, um, purpose is that they are against, like, a specific race or they are mm-hmm. against a specific religion or or they believe in anarchy or they believe in libertarianism. All of these people have various things that they don't agree on. But 
We call them the red-pilled right because they do agree on being red-pilled. And that is this, you know, meme that comes from the Matrix and is about this idea that the neoliberal mainstream culture in which we live as Americans is in some way a facade and a lie. And that once the veil is lifted and you take this red pill and you see the world for what it really is, you cannot unsee it. I think it's very important for people to understand that when we talk about far right and the red pilled right folks online who are causing mayhem and intentionally doing so, we're not referring to the Republican Party. In fact, these folks on the red pilled right largely hate the Republican Party. And their goal is to turn the GOP into a red-pilled party. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they are having a lot of success in doing that. And Elon Musk, like Trump before him, is a hero to this community, to these communities. Mm-hmm. And he's a hero mm-hmm. to the broad coalition of the red-pilled right. And and for many reasons, he represents a, a type of masculinity that they largely admire. He represents wealth. They largely want to see that they themselves could be a rich man like Musk one day. And that is a line of thinking that is inspired by people who believe that those who are the smartest, richest, and most powerful in our society should be the ones running it. Mm. And in Silicon Mm -hmm. Valley, that is a growing opinion. And certainly Musk now being the leader of Twitter is affirming a lot of the right-pilled group's desires here, right? Exactly. And I mean, within the first couple of days of him taking over the site, there were reports going on of like, you know, there was an increase in the use of of racial slurs and the presence of racial slurs on Twitter. And there was an increased level of harassment and people talking about anti-Semitism. And people were saying that that must mean that he had rolled back the moderation policies already. And the truth is he hadn't. He absolutely had not. But what he had done is his mere presence and the things he says when he tweets is, is extremely similar to what happened when Trump would tweet, which is that he was condoning these opinions. He was making it, uh, we have a chapter in our book called A Safe Space for Hate. He was making it clear that Twitter had become a safe space for that level of hatred. And so folks were coming out of the woodwork and did these moderation policies that Twitter has developed previously have any impact on silencing or or protecting the mainstream culture from red-pilled right media manipulators who are trying to get their agenda across? And the answer is yes. Definitely. It, they have. And what do you think he's trying to say about how he plans to run the business with this much talked about charging $8 a month for the blue checks? I have one because I'm a journalist associated with the newsroom, but I honestly don't place too much value on it. But he's creating this debate. What does that say about the value of a blue check? Mm. I mean, I think that it's silly for us to pretend that having a blue check doesn't confer value. I mean, it does. It it absolutely does. And they talk about the blue check media and the blue check Twitterati for a reason. Not only does it, as you and I may, are aware because we have blue checks, actually make the experience of Twitter slightly different because it means that people get an actual alert about our responses to them, like very minor things, but they sure. are real. Most people don't know about that, but 
what it does do is confer some level of legitimacy to, to, to people. And what Musk is saying is that he's like, that's a, a hierarchy of elites that was arbitrarily decided. And because largely it's media figures who get given this blue check mark, you know, all it does is make the media elites even more empowered to be in charge of our lives. And he is at his base, like a, the, the other people in the red-pilled right, an anti-media figure. He hates mm -hmm. the mainstream media. He's misunderstanding that the reason why there are those blue checks is not to elevate people of influence, but to actually verify that people who already are influential are who they say they are, so other people cannot impersonate them and cause havoc. Mm -hmm. um, I'm frankly really surprised by his $8 thing, his idea about that, only because I just figured that he would just strip everyone of their blue check marks and start over with some new system. I mean, that's what I thought would happen. What makes Twitter influential and important and a place people want to be is the fact that it is this flattened terrain on which someone with no cultural cachet can interact with Stephen King and Stephen King might reply to them. And, and mm -hmm. that is a special, very special thing about it. Um, and so if Musk were to charge blue check folks like Stephen King or alienate them in a way where he really did leave, like ultimately, if you lost all of those elites, true celebrity figures and politicians, Twitter would lose a lot of what makes it Twitter. So, I mean, Emily, if Twitter does completely morph into something different, where would users go, you think? Are there other platforms that can do what Twitter has been able to do in the past decade? Or is just like the social media era waning? God, I hope, my me personally, just speaking for my own desires, I really hope the social media era is just waning. Um, hmm. we have been in an era where there are social media platforms that have monopolies on the way that people engage. You know, we've got just a few big places and the little ones have not been able to compete. We've, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And if Twitter becomes something completely, totally different, there will be so many options. Right now, the one that seems the most popular with progressives and media figures is Mastodon, which is a, a Twitter alternative that's been around for years but never took off because it's not as easy to use and there weren't as many people on it. Um, you know, there's also Telegram people could use if they want, which lots of people already do. There's so many options. And there's new ones being announced and being conceived right now in direct reaction to Musk taking over Twitter and this anticipation that it will become something different and a lot of people will leave. And we'd already been in this new era of, of newsletters becoming popular. And so there's a chance that maybe this is going to herald the um, return to a kind of blog era which is the era on the internet that immediately predated the social media era. And maybe with the, um, I, I wouldn't call it like that social media sites are going to go away or dissolve or anything, but they may become just so much more fractured. And if that happens, that will undermine the monopolistic power of these platforms. And then that would have cascading impacts 
on our culture and on our politics. Part of the incentive and reason why those media manipulators behave the way they do is because the concentration of power on these platforms makes media manipulation super easy and possible. But if these sites become less important because there's so many other ones competing for everyone's attention, then media manipulation literally becomes harder. Mm-hmm. And that would be great. Now, there would be some sadness, right, if Twitter does go away in some form, because there have been some good things that came out of it. And to sort of put you on the spot, Emily, if you don't mind, is there a poignant line or two about the platform that you would write as part of its obituary if Twitter certainly does leave or become something that we don't recognize anymore. How should we remember it? Oh, yes. I mean, Twitter is not all bad at all. I, 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 I have loved Twitter um, in the same way that you kind of maybe love a problematic family member. Exactly. <laughs> but if I were writing the obituary for Twitter, I would say that Twitter is the place where I was able to meet and interact with some of my heroes Uh, It was where I have met and and learned about so many new ideas and new people. I haven't really made real friendships based off of Twitter in my real life, but a lot of people have, um, Mm -hmm. including my mom is like a classic boomer. And she uses Twitter to talk about her love of saving animals and mm. her love of ve- of cows and veganism. She started tweeting about her interests, her earnest, real interests. And she has gotten th- thousands of followers from it and real, true friendships. And so if, if I were writing the obit for Twitter, I would say for a lot of people, it would be a loss of community. There'll be a loss of opportunity. I know so, so many people who have gotten jobs based off of their exposure or ideas being popular on Twitter. And also it's been a place that has, um, you know, accelerated funny cultural moments and Mm -hmm. given us plenty of, of, Things to be joyful and silly about. And that's what I will miss. Like, if I, if I wrote it, I will miss the fun days of Twitter when we used to just all make jokes about ducks. And it was so <laughs> funny. Right, right. Emily Dreyfus, such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for helping me make sense of this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Emily Dreyfus is the co-author of the book Meme Wars, The Online Battles Upending Democracy in America, which just launched this past September. She's also the senior managing editor at the Harvard Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Like she said, she's not planning to leave the platform anytime soon, so follow Emily on Twitter. She's at Emily Dreyfus. that's D-R-E-Y-F-U-S-S. I'm at C-E-E-L-E-I, and the podcast is at Fifth and Mission. Find continuing coverage of the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk at sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. Thank you to King Kaufman, that's King underscore Kaufman, for editing this episode and to you for listening. <laughs>